sick, it wasn't like sick at home in bed. It was like, oh my gosh, my wife is so sick, I have to take her to the hospital. My sons were about four, o'clock, or four years old at the time. And as I sat there trying to figure out how is it that I am going to cope with my wife being this sick and how am I going to entertain these four-year-olds, the only thing that I could fall back on was the fatherhood entrance exam. Now, I know that maybe you aren't completely aware about the fatherhood entrance exam, primarily because most of the time we do it like when we go out to get ice chips or when, we're, when you're getting prepped for the C-section. Whatever the case is, they pull us into a room and they test us all the various fatherhood skills that we need. Things like, are you capable of falling asleep on a couch anytime you set home? Are you capable of embarrassing children? Are you capable of using puns in the glorious dad joke? All of these things that are crucial to success as a father. What I had to lean back on that moment was the magic section of the examination. I don't know if you remember, fathers, that portion, but this is the point where they taught us about the coin in the ear. You may or may not remember this section. I don't know if you've employed it since that day, but I employed it in that time. I needed to keep my kids in the emergency room as calm as possible, and so I had a coin, fortunately, and that coin traveled to all kinds of mysterious places, right? Because you can't just stop with, pulling it out of the ear. It had, to, it had to go in one ear and out the other ear. It had to go into someone's ear and then get pulled out of someone else's ear. A variety, it it got, so, uh, got so bad that I had to eat the coin, eat the coin, and, and then pop it out of my belly button into the ear of someone else. I was a modern-day David Copperfield with the coin. It, it was so believable that my children were looking for coins that they could eat to shoot out their belly buttons at one another. I had to stop them because, I mean, we were already in the ER, but I didn't want to have to pay for multiple people actually getting services there. Any good magician will tell you that the key to magic is misdirection. You do not look at what's actually happening. Instead, look over here. Put your attention over here while the real activity is going on over there. And any one of us, if you've ever watched the magic show, can fall prey to misdirection. Our text this morning as we continue the Exodus series was written to keep us centered on what is actually happening so that we won't be misdirected. You see, by the time we, uh, go ahead, if you are going to read along and open up to Exodus chapter 7, that's where we're going to focus this morning. But by the time we've gotten to the events of Exodus chapter 6, for literally hundreds of years, probably anywhere between 600 to 700 years, Yahweh, and that's anytime you see that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that Lord, that's a reference or that's the time when they're translating the name of God, the I am, Yahweh, and he has been telling people of his plan. In Genesis 12, 3, he tells Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. A few years later, God has another conversation with Abraham that's recorded in Genesis 15 in verse 13. Yahweh tells Abraham, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. 
where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. Then in the fourth generation they shall return. By the end of the book of Genesis in chapter 48, through Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who who was renamed by Yahweh as Israel, he turns to Joseph, and Joseph was the means by which the people had gotten to Egypt, and Jacob turns to Joseph and says, God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers, encouraging him so much that in 49.10, He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, a reference to God's redeeming plan through Jesus, the Lion of Judah. You see, after 400 years of slavery to the Egyptians, the people's thinking, the people that were supposed to be the people of God, they had become misdirected by their hardship. And and it's easy for us to look at that and say they should remember, but remember, this was 400 years that the people of Israel were in Egypt and not in the land that they should be. They weren't where God had promised them that they should be. They had watched their fathers and their grandfathers die in the same room. And it was easy to think, I think we've been forgotten about. Their thinking becomes misdirected. But in Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, God is telling us that he heard the problem He saw the problem. He knew the problem. And by chapter 3, God is saying to Moses, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land that I promised. I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do. And by the end of chapter 4, the people are starting to believe it again. They start to turn from their misdirected thinking, their thinking that had gotten distracted and misdirected by the hardship and the slavery they had endured by just the mere time that it had taken to get to that point. By chapter 5, we're introduced to another misdirected thinker, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who in 5.2 says, who's Yahweh that I need to obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know Yahweh. So he makes it worse for the Hebrews, making them collect the items that they needed to build the buildings Pharaoh was making them build. And the people's mind again becomes misdirected by their hardship. And they turn on Moses and say, I wish you would have just left us alone. By 6-8, Yahweh is repeating himself. Chapter 6, verse 8 of Exodus Yahweh is telling them again, I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you. I am. I am Yahweh. But the people were still misdirected. In 6.9, we see that they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and their cruel bondage. So by the time we get to chapter 7, we see that the misdirection is continuing. There's all kinds of things that are causing people to lose sight of what Yahweh was doing in his grand redemptive plan, the plan that he had been promising for 700 years, the plan that he had in his heart before the inception of time. We pick it up in chapter 7, and I'll read the first five verses for you. 
Then Yahweh said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh will not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh. When I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. You see, in 7, 1 through 5, Yahweh continues to make his intentions clear. Clear to Moses, trying to make it clear to the people, and telling Moses in 1 and 2, you will be my messengers to demand the release of the Hebrews. And then he tells them, that they're going to immediately confront difficulty. In verse 3, we get this odd verse. It's a repeat of something that God had said in chapter 4. Not knowing if you heard that section, we got to at least talk about this verse for a moment. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. A lot of people will read this verse and ask themselves, is it fair that Yahweh would harden Pharaoh's heart, and yet still hold him accountable to the demands that Yahweh's making on him? That seems kind of unfair. It at least ruffles our sense of fairness. Multiple times throughout these plague narratives, because chapter 7 begins the story of the 10 plagues that God will write upon Egypt. And multiple times in these plague stories, we will encounter three different versions of the statement that we find here in verse 3. Sometimes it'll say, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes it'll say, Pharaoh's heart was hard. Sometimes it will say, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And there are people that will have a tendency to look at the text like this and go, ah, the text can't even keep it straight, and you trust the Bible. Friends, I don't want to get completely misdirected on spending a ton of time unpacking this whole thing, but let me just share a couple of possibilities with you about how these phrases all work together just in case you get captured in a conversation like this. The two main lines of thinking or the two main lines of response to explaining this, how God could harden Pharaoh's heart yet still hold him responsible, one of the lines of thinking was that Yahweh intended to actively harden Pharaoh's heart, but did so only after Pharaoh hardened himself first. And they'll look at the way that the statements are made in the narratives and they'll see an order and they'll extract from that order that Pharaoh first was hard and he continued to harden his own heart and then it was God that hardened his heart at the end. Some people instead have taken a completely different line of approach. And I'll be honest with you, though, it's, if you want to talk about these things on a separate time, I would love to talk about this kind of stuff. But... What I'm a little bit more likened to is the range of verb tenses that are used here would allow for Yahweh allowing for the conditions for Pharaoh's hardening. It would, it would just like, uh, it would be, be like saying the same type of question of, did God cause that hurricane to go through that area or did God allow the natural weather patterns without stopping them from occurring? The text in Hebrew 
would allow for either of those to be used in those verbs. Now, again, I don't think it's necessarily super important for us to screw down a perfect response to this. But nonetheless, whatever your interpretation is, verses 4 and 5 tell us that Yahweh's purposes were clear. I'm going to free the Hebrews, and I'm going to look again at verse 5. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. Do you remember Pharaoh's question in chapter 5, verse 2? Who's this Yahweh guy? Who is he to be able to be making demands on the mighty Pharaoh? king of the most powerful civilization at that time. Who's Yahweh? God tells Moses that these signs will make it clear who Yahweh is. And so we get in verse 18 to 13, the first showdown. Let me read the text to you. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when Pharaoh speaks to you saying, work a miracle. Then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh and thus they did just as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. For each one threw down his staff and turned, and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them, as Yahweh had said. If we look at this first showdown in verses 9 and 10, we see that Moses is going to communicate God's message through a sign that he's already used to try to convince the Hebrews that those guys, Moses and Aaron, speak for Yahweh. It's an interesting fact, just to kind of point out for you Bible trivia nerds among us, that the word that's used here for the serpent that the staff became is different than the word that was used in chapter 4, when the staff was thrown down and it became a serpent snake. But the word that's actually used here is used elsewhere in the Old Testament for describing giant sea monsters. This quite possibly, remember where this is happening, in the midst of Egypt that has a giant river delta moving through it, these people would be familiar with the scourge of the Floridians of our country, and they would know crocodiles They would know the giant water beast. And it most likely was, uh, at least that would be my guess, fun trivia fact. We could argue about that later if you want. But it's a different word for this, this water beast, this giant beast that the staff throws down. The magicians, though, get called by Pharaoh in verse 11, and they misdirect Pharaoh from the truth. Look again at verse 11. Pharaoh called for the wise men. Notice, Pharaoh called for the wise men. It wasn't that the wise men ran in. Pharaoh called for the wise men, the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same thing. The magicians misdirect Pharaoh from the truth, and they do the same. How? Bottom line? I don't know. What the text says is that they used their secret arts. 
The problem is if we try to translate that idea, that could range anywhere from like parlor tricks of, ooh, the quarter's over here. Oh, it's shooting out of your belly button. Or moving, moving the, or making the Statue of Liberty disappear. On to the possibility even that these guys had some type of sorceress evil power. But whatever it is, be it some type of giant trick, smoke and mirrors, or evil sorcery, whatever, you have to realize that what was being used in this moment was being used by an enemy that has been active before this moment, is active today, and was active in this time. That enemy whose plan is to actively terrorize people, whose plan is always to do anything he possibly can to thwart the plans of Yahweh. The guy who is literally hell-bent on wreaking havoc on this earth for the people of God. Even though the giant serpent, this beast of God's staff through Aaron swallowed up the other staffs, the misdirection of the magicians was enough to create more steel in Pharaoh's heart. And so, we get to the first plague in verse 14. The first plague, you'll notice, if, you, if you've watched the Ten Commandments, if you have seen the flannel graphs, if you've just read ahead in Scripture, you know that the first plague is turning the Nile to blood. The Nile is a giant river. This is where I would insert my dad joke, right? Right? Pharaoh was in denial. That was the problem, right? Eh? Eh? I passed my fatherhood examination, okay? I got to use this stuff. The point of starting with the Nile is the point that this plague would shake the foundation of Egyptian culture to its core. You think about it for a second. Bodies of water really make a place. Seriously speaking, I, I highly doubt that most of us would be living in this region if Lake Tahoe wasn't here. And it's not necessarily because we all love Lake Tahoe. But this place would just be another forest if there was no Lake Tahoe. Similarly, Egypt would just be another barren desert without the Nile River flowing through it. And what made the Egyptians special is that they could, they could harness the power of the Nile flowing through that desert and use it for farming in the desert. Using aqueducts, they could even get that water to buildings, bringing water inside, allowing them to have all kinds of civilization advancements. It was such a significant component to their life that one of the preeminent deities, the Egyptians had many, but one of the most important deities for the Egyptians was the god of the Nile, Hopi. When we look at chapter 15, I'm sorry, chapter 7 and start at verse 15. I'm going to read you 15, 16, and 17. Here are Yahweh's instructions. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to where? To the water. Station yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile. And you shall take in your hand the staff that was turned into a serpent. And you will say to him, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. 
But behold, you have not listened to this point. Thus says Yahweh, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it shall be turned to blood. For the first plague, God speaking through Moses tells Pharaoh, because you won't let them go, you are going to see that the great I am, the mighty Yahweh, has power even over Hopi, the god of the Nile. The water will be turned to blood. The fish will die. It's going to stink, the text says. It will be difficult to drink. I think it's fair to ask, and you should, again, be prepared when you're having conversations about this type of text. It's fair to ask, was the Nile really turned to real blood, like the same stuff that if I cut myself now and it came out, was it the same stuff? You'll remember in chapter 4, verse 9, that Moses used Nile water as a miracle to turn it to blood when it was poured out, and that was meant to convince the Hebrews that he spoke for Yahweh. Now, some people will look at this text, and for whatever reason, and I won't necessarily say that they are inherently they're wrong in their pursuit, but they will be more comfortable with saying one of the more common geological phenomena that occurs around the Nile is that they, it, because it's been flowing through so many regions, there are times when it churns up and picks up a bunch of different silt. Then, because the Egyptian culture was so close to an ocean, the Mediterranean, that it was even more possible that they could have had a massive red tide at the time, one of those like super toxic algae blooms that occurs and could have killed off the fish, could have stunk, or it literally could have been turned to blood. I feel like that option needs to stay on the table. But you'll notice that some water was still available as we read towards the end of chapter 7, if you look at verse 24, so the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink, but they could not drink of the water of the Nile. So the water that they had access to, and even God's instructions within this, within this specific moment, was that he was even going to wave the staff over, and the water that was in their houses and in their reservoirs would also turn to blood. Again, when it comes to these types of disagreements or people trying to propose that maybe it's this as opposed to that, I see again that it really doesn't matter. Be it an absolute miracle of literal blood or the coordination of natural causes making water appear as blood and smell and kill fish, the text still focuses on, it still focuses us on that it was an act of Yahweh that by doing this, you will know that I am. That by turning the water to blood, the I am is in charge of that water. By conjuring up all of the natural disasters that could have possibly happened on that river at the same time, you will know that God is in charge of the natural world. And as a result, in 22 through 25, we see that our enemy is able to make the misdirection continue. Verse 22, the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them 
as Yahweh had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house with no concern, even for this. The misdirection continues. The magicians are able to get some of that water dug by their new wells, and they imitate the act. The enemy pulls his sleight of hand and manages to keep Pharaoh unconcerned, misdirected again. Which brings us to the end of chapter 7, and so I'm left with asking the question, what are we supposed to make of all of this today? What do we do with this now? How is Yahweh still using this story today, which I believe he very much is? You see, in this story, I think we could easily see ourselves as the Hebrew people, allowing our difficult circumstances to be used by the enemy to misdirect us from the outworking of Yahweh's plans right in their midst. We so often can allow just a little bit of difficulty to distract our mind from the reality that Yahweh is still working out his saving plan directly in your midst. But I think we could also see ourselves in this story as Pharaoh, who never seems to grasp at this point who Yahweh actually is and what he's doing, who allows himself to be misdirected by the things that were going on around him. But notice it was Pharaoh who called for the magicians, not the magicians who interrupted themselves initially. And I ask of the text, as I, as I think about how this might apply to what's going on with me, what is it that was really misdirecting Pharaoh? Was it his power? Was it his money? Was it his quest for control? Was it his self-importance? I think whether you want to see yourself as the Hebrews, you want to see yourself as Pharaoh, or just want to see the story for what it is, you have to admit that in your midst, the enemy is trying to misdirect your thinking as well. That's what he does. Your money, your quest for control, your self-importance, your difficult circumstances, they can all be easy misdirections. What about your fear? What about just not getting what you want? Or worse, having to deal with something that you didn't want to have to deal with at all. Friends, we are easily misdirected. But we can remedy this. If we will, if you will join with me, if we daily, multiple times per day, once a day probably won't be enough, multiple times per day, Allow the Holy Spirit to remind ourselves of the presence and the power of Yahweh, the great I Am, who is in your midst, working, unfolding this ancient redemptive plan all around you. And he's doing this, Paul writes in Romans 8, by using, for those of you familiar with the verse, it's one of the most popular verses of the Bible, that God is using how many things for the good of those who love him? All. All. Wait, so you mean all the good things, right? No, I don't mean that. Did Paul mean that? No, then I don't mean that either. 
So, like, the bad things and the good things, the hard things, the blessings and the curses of my life, yes, all things are being folded in to this ancient plan of redemption. God drawing his people back to himself. Friends, this week, this morning, this moment, don't forget that Yahweh is in your midst working. What do we need to do? We find our rest in the fact that Yahweh is working. We speak to our friends, to our neighbors, to anyone who will listen that Yahweh is working. We teach our children that Yahweh is working. The saving one is in our midst and he is saving us. Let's thank him for that now. Great saving one, we thank you for your work. We thank you that you are a God who is capable of using all things. That you are capable of working together all things for all the good of those who love you. God, don't let us be misdirected. Let us keep our attention on you that we might give you your due praise. Amen. Yahweh, our God, he is sovereign.